The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. Good afternoon, everybody. This is the Leslie Marshall Show. This is Cliff Schechter. I'll be filling in from 4 to 6 o'clock Eastern Time. Uh, we're currently sitting here at 4.06. It's been uh, quite a day. We're going to be talking about uh, <laughs> the uh, ongoing madness that is uh, the world we're living in with President Trump, President-elect Trump, minority President-elect Trump, which uh, I like to call him. Um, he, uh, he likes sending out crazy tweets, and uh, you probably already know that, but we kind of thought maybe that changed a little bit once he was actually president. Also, there was an attack at Ohio State. We're going to talk about that. Um, and uh, probably some other things will come up, but um, I think we'll jump right into it. We should have our first guest on the line, David Pepper, who is the chairman of the Ohio Democratic Party and the author of The People's House. David, are you with me? I am. How are you doing? All right. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Yeah. Are you in uh, Columbus today? I'm actually down in Cincinnati. You are okay. So, so I was not there. up in Columbus, but obviously, um, you know, I'm very troubled by what happened. Yeah. Well, obviously, our thoughts are with them all. It sounds like at least everyone has survived so far. Knock on wood. So that's a good thing. Um, okay. I just figured I'd check in with you on that. But uh, let's get to more of the more uh, of what we wanted to talk about, which is first of all, so you know, I, I had you on in the past to talk about this this uh, great book you wrote, The People's House. And which I believe the Wall Street Journal has now given you a great review for, and a number of other important outlets like that, Huffington Post. Um, does it freak you out at all seeing what's going on right now in this country and what you wrote about, considering like you almost eerily predicted all of this? You know, I, I, I think I've said it before. I, I wrote it as fiction, and uh, for the last three months, it's been scary how much some of what I wrote. Uh, has felt too close to what actually has happened. I mean, hopefully not. But um, you know, obviously, you know, my, my one of my points in writing it was to make the observation that we do have real problems in our democratic process. And I've always, I've always wondered what other countries think about. You know, we we tell the world what a great process of democracy we have, but then we have all these, you know, little wrinkles to it that we don't even analyze. You know, things like gerrymandering, things like how we hold our elections. And I think it's fair to say in the last couple of weeks, things like the Electoral College. And yeah. so we tout to the world how, how great a system we have, but there, there are certainly wrinkles and weaknesses. And I've always thought other countries must look at what we, what we do and find it amusing that we, we proudly tout everything, even though there are flaws. So part of my book was another, you know, a mogul from another country taking advantage of some weaknesses in our system to rig Which country did that happen um, to be? What's that? <laughs> So what country did that mogul happen to be yeah, from? It, actually, he happened to be Russian. Uh, <laughs> now, he wasn't government. He was an energy mogul who wanted to change policy in the U.S. Congress and figured out all he has to do is, is rig some elections through some weak, uh, weakly protected technology uh, and voting machines. And he could, if he just win the only 20, 25 swing districts in Congress, thanks to gerrymandering the matter, 
you can change the outcome on policy. And that was almost a metaphor for someone, you know, there are weaknesses in our system. And, and obviously this election, whatever we're thinking of the current recount, it, it's pretty clear that people, that other countries were thinking that exact thing and did some of that. So I wish it was more fiction than it's been. And uh, I've had a lot of people come up to me in the last couple of months saying, you know, what did you know and when do you know it? Uh, but um, I've also been happy to get, honestly, good reviews of, of, you know, just being an interesting book to read. Well, it is. It's a very interesting book. But I, I think it actually, you know, when the first time I had you on, I had you on as, wow, this is weird. What's going on out there right now? Um, at, you know, with Russia, and we knew that there was some involvement and some hacking. Your book talked about some of these kinds of things. But to me now, it's even more important and more prescient because I find that often from fiction, people can talk about things that it's much harder to talk about in nonfiction, and we can learn from it. Um, you know, I, I go back to when, um, you know, I mean, not to, to strain this too far, but to go back to when 9-11 happened, and I, I believe it was Condoleezza Rice who said no one could have ever imagined you know, this kind of thing could happen. Well, we had a number of people who had imagined it in books and in, you know, somebody taking over an airplane and doing this, this very thing. Um, and so it, 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 sometimes fiction may be the, the place to pay attention because it's, you know, you can sit there outside of kind of this bubble that we're all in that, you know, we always hear about how great our system is in America and realize, you know what, there really are a number of ways to easily hack this system, and we, we are it's so polarized right now, and I'm sorry, I'm going to blame who's to blame here. The right will simply not let us update our system. They're benefiting from gerrymandering. They're benefiting from the electoral college when they don't get a majority vote, and these are all things that if we were putting our democracy first, we would fix, but they won't let us fix them. And so we're, we're in this precarious position where we're, we're sort of susceptible to this, wouldn't you think? Yeah, and the, the thing that I don't even get to my book is I think the other area of great weakness is post-Citizens United with super PACs and dark money. I mean, whether it's big spending within the country or from beyond that you couldn't, you know, you might not figure out. I mean, there's a, there's a huge other weakness we've created. So, so, again, the point of the book is we have created weaknesses, to a basic democratic system that someone who really wanted to could take advantage of. And one thing I wanted to say about the book, too, is, you know, I didn't just make things up on, like, the voting machine part. I mean, a lot of what is now being talked about, if you go back and look at what academics have said, people like Dan Takaji at Ohio State and others, they've been testifying in different places and doing studies that show that you really want paper ballots. You really do. I mean, we're seeing this debate right now. Now, I don't know what's going to happen with the recount, um, but, right. but I do know that that people, serious academics, have for for the last fifteen years, said you're asking for trouble if you only if you have electronic voting machines without a paper ballot. And I think you know, so it's fiction what I wrote, but I actually I did base it on valid critiques that have come forward. And and as you mentioned, I'm also a huge. Uh, very passionate about ending gerrymandering. It's it's such a fundamental weakness to our democracy that that you know. Again, I've always actually said, and this is one reason that, that I was motivated to write the book. I always thought, you know, God help us if Vladimir Putin understands gerrymandering in America because he'll try and copy it, and if he copied it, he could create like we have majorities in legislatures that are basically unassailable no matter what the people want. It's right. that undemocratic. So part of my point was it's almost like a comparative political science, which is through the eyes of other countries, some of our some of our fundamental aspects of how we elect people have real flaws. And that was yeah. 
you know, it, it ends up being a fiction story, but it's based on all those observations and, and real weaknesses in our system. Yeah, and you can't not see that, right? I mean, we're going through it with the Electoral College right now. Obviously, what happened in 2000 was really bad with Gore. But, I mean, we've never seen anything. American democracy has never seen anything like this. I mean, Hillary Clinton, you know, estimates from Cook Political Reporter that she could win by 2.7, 2.8 million votes and still doesn't win the Electoral College, doesn't really even come that close. It's not like she got 268. So we've got this, you know, it's not a, Electoral College doesn't even necessarily aligning with the popular vote anymore. Um, we saw after 2010, you brought Citizens United, the Koch brothers and others went into states and literally, you know, pumped God knows how much money to win state legislative seats that were used to only getting, you know, $50,000 worth of spending and then maybe 100 or 200, and they pumped millions into it. Well, you know, and if, you're, if you look at our system, it really wouldn't be that hard for a, a foreign, uh, you know, entity to, to put money through an LLC into a C3, pass through to a C4, wherever it may end up, and, and use that money on, on, on politics. There's so many of these types of loopholes. We've done nothing right. to fix. No, that's right. I mean, and, and the biggest one is probably citizens, what Citizens United allows. Uh, it, there's so much dark money, and I do think that it does create a system where there's, that can determine so much. I mean, think about, think about the potential for that in these very low turnout caucuses in presidential primaries, if someone really got serious. Um, yeah. You know, you have these caucuses where the turnout's very low. You know, a, a state like Minnesota – you know, five million people, two hundred fifty thousand people determining the outcome. If 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 the if the Koch brothers decided they wanted to spend millions to gin up turnout for you know whatever reason, they could determine the outcome of these caucuses. So there's you add Citizens United and all these other things, and it really does blow up. My my book doesn't even get into that. I mean, my mine was much more about gerrymandering and right. trying to, and, and but 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 also just some other you know observations about elections and voting machines and the need for paper ballots. Uh, but I right. think that, that it's sort of a metaphor for the broader issue, which is we got to, we, I'm a, you know, I'm a big believer we got to reform. And, um, and if I can make the case for reform through an, ex, hopefully an exciting political story, I, I've got people who've read this who are, who don't care at all or didn't think they cared about politics who are now saying, man, these are the things that are really a problem. Are they real? And I'll say, yeah, they need to be fixed. So I try to use a, a, a um, fiction book to highlight real problems. And, you know, I like I important. said, well, the one thing I didn't realize was that some of those real problems would become so darn clear from the actual election we just went through and are still going through. Well, maybe we'll learn from that and this. And, and so we'll learn some more. We're going to take a break right now. But when we come back, David, I want to talk about Ohio and where we see our place in the future here as a swing state. Welcome back. This is Cliff Schechter, and I am hosting the Leslie Marshall Show, as you may know if you're here. Um, we will be here for the next hour and 40 minutes, so stick with us. Right now we're talking to David Pepper, chairman of the Republican Party. <laughs> Let me try that again. Chairman of the Ohio Democratic Party, uh, author of The People's House. <laughs> I, I was just reading something that had the word Republican in it, and uh, woo. 
So, uh, yeah, David, can we still be friends? Yeah, I actually have been thinking about the Republican leaders uh, as disappointed as, as we are, and we got a lot of work to do across the country, and it'll be interesting what happens in the DNC chair uh, uh, contest. But to, to wake up this morning as a Republican leader and have to defend those crazy tweets from Donald Trump yesterday, I just, you know, I can't imagine what they're what they're thinking. I've been joking that Mike Pence has probably been rereading this Twenty uh, Fifth Amendment, Section Four. Mm-hmm. I call it the Air Force One clause, um, <laughs> where they tried to do that in Air Force One and that's, came close. That's right. Because, this, uh, because Trump is almost mentally, it's like he's stuck up in an airplane, except for instead of the Russians trying to chase him down and shoot him, they're actually trying to give him big bags of money, perhaps. I, I mean, I mean at, some, at some point, I mean, it's truly, I mean, it, that this this tweet, you know, we all know that he talks his crazy stuff, but, but this tweet about the millions voting... Uh, illegally. I mean, again, you know, I, I just think about Rob Portman or the chairman of the Republican Party, or I, I mean, I'm hoping at least among themselves they look at each other and say, hey, you know, if this keeps going on, like, we got to do something, let alone the enormous conflicts of interest that, yeah, that I, I think, you know, basically from day one create a constitutional problem. Um, it's uh, It really is. I mean, I do think that that, that Republicans and insiders is, you know, this, someone in this staff of Donald Trump knows every day what's really going on. And hopefully someone has at some point the patriotism come forward and say, everyone, we got we got something here we got to deal with, because it really is. I mean, that that set of tweets yesterday was so bizarre. And in the end, I'm glad as the chair here, David, you're saying this, you know, of, of, a, of a party in a major state, because I finally reached that position. I, you know, I, I'm a obviously very progressive, but I'm a small-c conservative in that I believe in institutions. I like to respect our democratic process and not do, you know, uh, and, and adhere to it. But there, but there is a reason that the founders put the electors in there. And there's a reason, you know, that we, we have some of these fail-safes. And this is the first time ever where I feel like we really are in a position where we've got somebody who, I mean, I'm sorry, I'm just going to say it, is president who's not all there who seems to suffer from some form of narcissistic personality disorder. And, you know, at what, at what point, I mean, even, you know, Mike Pence, I mean, I would take him at this point. At what point, you know, can, does somebody stand up, and you use the right word, patriotism? Does somebody stand up there and, and is willing to risk their career or risk something for the fact that they care more about this country? You know, I mean, I don't care if it ends, you know, if it ended up being Jeb Bush now or Mitt Romney. There's a whole bunch of people that wouldn't make me happy policy-wise. It'd make me very unhappy. But at least we know we know somebody who has all of their marbles was tending to the shop. Uh, what I would say, you know, and I, you know, I've been reading some of the back and forth among academics about what the electoral college can and can't do. I, I don't see that happening. But it, I would say, at the very least. You know, on the inside, at the very least, my hope is that people who know a little better. And this is why, you know, it's you, you know, as a Democrat, uh, I still am because I believe our country matters more than anything. I still hope that reasonable people will get some of these cabinet appointments. I, I would right. love to have Romney over Rudy Giuliani because oh, I do think at some point Romney would say, I'm sorry, Mr. President, we cannot do that. Uh, I think it's better to have Rents Priebus than, you know. I don't know who, but someone like Steve Bannon. Newt Gingrich, or, right. Yeah, exactly. So, it, but it, in the end of the day, it's, it, and, I'm, you know, and you have a Rob Portman in the Senate, at the end of the day, it's going to come down to those people more than us. 
because I think most of these other, I think the institutions aren't going to stand up yet. Uh, I think it's going to be up to individuals who at some point, and it may, based on the tweets yesterday, this may come a lot sooner than later. They, they, these these people in these positions are going to have to create their own sort of, you know, fail safe, where a number of them together, if if the equivalent of those tweets yesterday, is sort of a policy of that's that bizarre and that disturbing, acting on crazy conspiracy theories, it will be on those people in whatever positions they're in, to to be able to do something about that and to, you know, whether it is the. The Amendment 25, or whether it's something else, at least come to the country and say, I mean, say something and try and stop it. And my hope, you know, I've seen John McCain say a couple good statements about torture, for example. Good. Yep. I, I, you know, he's he's a frustrating person to watch, but you know what? He's sincere on that, and he said, I don't care who the president is, we're not going to torture people. Good. That's exactly what we need to start seeing from the people who are going to have more control over this, which is unfortunately for us Republicans in the near future. Yeah. Right. Well, we need the so, good yeah, half. It's a big, it's a, go ahead. Know, we need the good. I was just to say we need the good half dozen and maybe even a few more of that in the Senate, who you and I may disagree with very much ideologically, but still have proven that you know that they care at least somewhat about the country and they're willing to stand up. I think of Jeff Flake. I think of Lindsey Graham. Or I think of Susan Collins. I'm not saying I love any of their ideologies. I would stand against most of it. But, you know, and throw in Rob Portman. They have to decide. Yeah. Are they going to – they could come together as a, you know, one of those gangs they love doing in Washington, Gang of Six or something, and say, look, uh, you're not getting anything through unless you do A, B, C, and D. I would hope they do right. something Right, and I like think uh, – is it Justin Amash or Amash? I don't have yes. I think he's the only person, but let's give him credit, who stood up on the whole sort of kleptocracy um, yep. conflict of interest issue and said this is a problem. And I, I do think that, that – you know, I'm all about working together when you can, but I, I think there needs to be a line drawn that Democrat. We really can't work with this president unless he cleans that stuff up. I mean, to to start cutting deals on other things before you say there's a massive conflict of interest that every American should be concerned about, and that's this is one where Rob Portman and and all the people who were talking about the Clinton Foundation for the last year, especially, should say, you know, we're consistent. And what Donald Trump here, where we're getting building projects approved and accelerated yep. all around the world. Okay, we're, we're coming to a break. You stand up. David, but yeah. thank you for joining us. Everybody grab a copy of The People's House. David's book predicted all of this. It's scary. And uh, thanks for joining us again. David Pepper, chairman of the Ohio Democratic Party. Leslie Marshall Show, where I'll be guest hosting for the next hour and a half, uh, which is a great conversation with David Pepper, chairman of the Ohio Democratic Party. We're going to move on, um, not that far away, talk a little bit about some uh, sad attack happened earlier today in Ohio. Um, I should have with me Lori Haas, who is the, the Virginia director of the Coalition to Stop Gun Violence. Are you with me, Lori? Yes. Yes, I am. Good afternoon, Cliff. Well, thank you so much, and, and um, I think it's important for me to note also that um, not only are you the Virginia director, but, of course, you got involved in this, uh, in preventing gun violence when your daughter, Emily, was shot at Virginia Tech. Is that correct? Um, yes, it is. Um, my daughter, Emily, was shot and thankfully only injured um, during that shooting and, and survived. 
So, um, you know, it, it thrusts me and my family um, in, into the world of gun violence prevention and, and what that means, you know, for not only our college campuses, but, uh, you know, the, the, the lethality of firearms in, you know, a lot of situations. Right. Well, we're thankful, obviously, for your that your daughter... Um, obviously, I don't want to use the phrase "ended up okay," but certainly that she survived that when that was such a horrific attack. Um, but so what happened today? You know, originally we thought that that this might have been a, a shooting that happened on the Ohio State campus in Columbus. Uh, it turned out I think people heard shots because the police eventually shot and killed uh, the attacker. But he attacked by running his car into people and then uh, getting out with a knife and stabbing them. Um, so what do you say to people who say, oh, well, you know, the, people can attack with cars, they can attack with knives, you know, gun control doesn't make a difference. Do you have a response to that? Well, I think that, you know, data and research shows the, a complete opposite, that when a firearm is used, the lethality and the, the death toll, you know, increases uh, quite a bit more than using weapon, other weapons, whether it be a car or a blunt instrument or a knife. Yeah, I mean, to, to go with that, all the data shows that. And, I mean, I wanted to give you a chance to discuss that. I think my feelings are probably pretty well known that I've stated on this show and other places, which, you know, a lot of people forget um, the day that, that the terrible tragedy happened in Newtown. There was a school attack in China where the perpetrator had only a knife and stabbed about 20, 25. It was almost the exact same amount as the number, the number attacked in Newtown, yet everybody survived in China. Um, yeah. It's not to say that that's a good thing that someone got a, even got a hold of a knife and did this, but the difference it makes, as we see today, every single one of those students uh, at Ohio State survived so far. There's one in critical condition that I'm aware of, but they've all survived. And as we know, with what the just the research, what we've seen that assault weapons can do, for example, that just wouldn't be possible, would it, if somebody got out and, and sprayed those same nine people with bullets? Yeah, you know the the lethality of a firearm cannot just be cannot be overstated, and the lethality of these high capacity uh, magazines and clips and the and the um, you know semi automatic nature of uh, certain um, assault weapons, you know, just make the numbers go higher and higher and higher in a very you know short amount of time. So. Again, the lethality of the of, of any firearm, and especially these um, assault weapons, cannot be overstated. You know, you hear, and and we are sad, and our thoughts and prayers are with the families whose loved ones were, you know, injured today. I'm sure it's horrific to get a phone call, you know, like I got. You know, come to the come to the hospital. Your son or daughter, or you know, loved one has been injured. And you don't want to get that phone call, but thank God, thank God, really, that there was not a firearm in this situation. The death toll, you know, from every bit of um, research tells us would have been much higher, you know, had that gentleman jumped out of his vehicle and started spraying, you know, bullets, you know, um, into a crowd or into a classroom or down the hallway, you know, it just, the, the outcome. You know, yep. would have been different, and I and I don't think that's just mere speculation on your part or my part. We've seen it over and over and over again. We've also seen, you know, it's not just speculation. We've seen ABC News did a did a live sort of 
I guess I called a live study where they had people sit in the classroom. They told them a shooter was coming in and nobody was able to draw quick enough and people sort of aimed at each other by mistake. So, so there's the fallacy that if everybody's carrying one of these things, we're somehow a safer society. I mean, of, I mean it, it, having to even have these arguments gets so ridiculously frustrating after a while because we know the other side is just obfuscating because we know which countries are the safest, places like Japan and parts of Western Europe and other places where, they, where guns are controlled, or you can go to other continents around the, of the world where they are not, and, you know, you've got pandemonium. And so to, to the pretend, you know, I mean, let's put it this way. The guy in, in Orlando couldn't have, how many was it, 49 people that he massacred? Couldn't have done that with a knife, could he have? I, I agree. Absolutely not. And, you know, I think it's, it's particularly um, notable that, you know, no one, very few, virtually no one in the law enforcement and public safety community, you know, are calling for more guns as a solution to the problem of gun violence. The only one calling for more guns is the gun lobby and, and those politicians that are in their pockets. You know, they are the only ones that are, are driving the notion that, um, or, the, or, you know, pushing the notion that more guns make us safer, when in fact they don't. And categorically, uh, it has been proven. And, you know, we're, we're benefiting from research by academics across this country and, you know, in the absence of what the CDC should be doing, where we are getting some um, good work coming out of academia, you know, on this very notion. Do, do firearms make you safer? And, and study after study after study categorically says, no, they do not. There's an you know, increased chance of suicide, the increased chance of accidents, increased chance of self of harm and, you know, and a perpetrator getting hold of that fire, the firearm you, you, you know, are trying to possess for self-defense. So right. we have well, seen I think time and time again that it, it is firearms, you know, do not add to the safety of a situation about the only exception is what I, you know, contend is what we have determined as a society is, is the route we want to go, and that's trained law enforcement. You know, I, I like to share with people, you know, law enforcement officers have to undergo hundreds of hours, literally hundreds of hours, to be allowed to carry a firearm in public. That's because they have to train for retention. You know, if the bad guy gets mm -hmm. close, they have to be able to retain their weapon. They have to train physiologically so that their peripheral vision doesn't abandon them in a fight-or-flight situation. They have to yep. train for muscle memory. They have to train for judgment. These are all, you know, mental and physical skills that have to be acquired over many, many hundreds of hours of training. And even at that, even with all that training, there are some studies out by the uh, New York City Police Department that with that training, Law enforcement only hit their target in, a, in an active shooter situation, you know, somewhere in the range of 20 to 30 percent of the time. Yeah, so I saw that study. Yep. If, if law enforcement can't do it with all those hundreds of hours of training, you know, I have no confidence in some, you know, some citizen who thinks they know what they're doing, carrying a firearm concealed or open, and being able to contribute to the safe, my safety or my loved one's safety. So yep. I have... You know, no qualms, um, you know, uh, rejecting any call whatsoever for guns on campus. I, you know, adamantly opposed to that, as is 
most of the public safety officials that I, I work with on a daily basis. Right, and that's what the NRA has been doing most recently. Uh, so before I get to that, to get to your last point, yeah, the thought of somebody who has no training and we require less and less. Some states don't even require any hours on a range now to have a concealed carry permit. But in a state like Ohio, I think our governor may have knocked it down from something like 12 to 8 or 6 hours because 6 hours is really going to do it. And, you know, if you're in a dark club like in Orlando or a movie theater like in Aurora, to think that somebody who has no training, who's never been in that kind of a situation before, is going to respond is to, to give so much credit that we're all just these, these logical beings that have no emotions, that people don't get scared, and that people don't, you know, suddenly react in ways that, that they wouldn't normally. And we just know, you know, and studies show it again and again, but we, we all just know this. That's not... The way human behavior is, I've had numerous friends who've served in the military, and they'll say the same thing all the time. But we, even with all the training they got, the first time they were in a live firefight, you know, they were scared out of their wits because this yeah. is not a normal human experience. You know, they have these simulators that um, that are available to some law enforcement agencies, and you know, I'm aware of, of uh, one person in the uh, gun lobby in Virginia, you know, who put himself in the simulator and, you know, you know the bad guy's coming, you know the bad guy's armed, you know that you're going to be prepared to use your, you know, your firearm, and yet this person couldn't do it in every single situation, failed miserably. You know, you just cannot predict your uh, behavior, your, 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 your peripheral vision leaves you, completely, categorically leaves you. Emily, my daughter, after the shooting, will tell me, I didn't see anything, Mommy, I didn't see anything. You know, she yep. just, you know, she was in that, in that, you know, situation where her tunnel vision, you know, crept in and, and she, you know, made a beeline for the door when the law, law enforcement officers were banging on the door saying, let me in, let me in. So, um, you well, know, it's a, it's we, a human reaction. Yeah, well, we've, we've situations with law enforcement, you know, there was a shooting several, many, more than several years ago, four law enforcement officers in a coffee shop in Seattle. You know, not a single one of them got off a shot. Yep. They're the most trained. So, um, you know, I, I couldn't agree with you more, Cliff. We, you know, the notion that, you know, untrained people, you know, with a firearm are going to do any of us any good in any um, situation with an active shooter just doesn't exist in my mind. Right. And I hate to get into uh, evolution because I know after electing I, I, I have trouble saying his name. Let's call him Minority President-Elect Trump. Um, we, you know, we may, maybe we don't believe in evolution anymore. But, but while we still have it, um, you know, evolution trained us to, you know, the whole fight or flight is to avoid predators. Um, you know, the evolutionary process didn't imagine those predators would have assault weapons. So everything that's going on with your bodily process of whether to save all the energy possible you'll need to fight or, you know, to, to run, it's not a matter, you know, we're, we're not built that way. And, and that's, you know, scientists will say that. So, I mean, I know it's, it's these guys who, who glorify all this and think that, you know, they're living in a Wyatt Earp movie. Um, and, and they're going to handle everything by just pulling out their trusty gun, even if they have no training. You know, it, it's, that's, it's ridiculous. And uh, So, I mean, you've been part of the effort to fight guns on campus, too, haven't you? I mean, we've seen it happen now in the University of Texas, um, uh, well, all over Texas, but there was a great 
uh, counter movement, uh, the University of Texas at Austin. I don't even know if I'm allowed to say their names on the radio station. Um, let's call it uh, Ox versus Glocks. We'll say that. Um, and uh, <laughs> great, great organization. And and, uh, and and some others. So have you been a part of that kind of argument? Have they been trying to do that in Virginia? Well, um, you know, there have been, we have seen legislation come before the Virginia General Assembly on, on a couple, on several occasions um, that would, in various um, settings, allow, let's say, professors with a concealed handgun permit to carry on campus, or even blatant, you know, guns by anyone with a concealed handgun permit to carry. And those bills have been um, uh, defended and defeated, you know, at the committee level in Virginia. So we are very, very fortunate. I, I have to speculate that there are even the most conservative legislators in Virginia don't have an appetite to fight the Virginia Tech families and all of those who would uh, oppose that. So we've been we've been fortunate in Virginia, uh, and most uh, definitely, uh, you know, the campaigns against guns on campus and Andy Pelosi and his supporters have done a good good job across the United States. Sadly, in Texas. You know, they did see a guns on campus bill passed um, about a year and a half ago. It went into effect in August. And again, there was no legitimate university community, not, not administrators, not professors, not students, not staff, that was supporting, you know, the notion that anyone wanted to carry firearms on campus. It was a very, very, very small, narrow uh, community. Yeah, a number of staff of, left, of the right? Gun Oh, professors retired, resigned from the University of Texas. There has been an immense amount of pushback. There are professors who have put, you know, no firearms loud signs in their classroom windows. And, you know, there's still a um, large resistance from the Austin community. Texas Gun Sense is working on it. And the yep. organization that you referred to, there's, um, you know, Gun Free UT, which is, uh, a, you know, a number of staff and professors and you know, just some organic pushback, you know, across the campus um, with regard to that notion. You know, it is the gun lobby pushing their mantra of any gun, anywhere, anytime, by anyone, you know, for the sole purpose of selling more firearms. It's all about, you know, making money. And, you know, it's, it's you know, pushing guns into more places that we continue to see, and college campuses being one of them in various states across the, across the country. No, that's correct. I mean, that's what, that's what it is. People don't get that the NRA at this point is just a front for, for uh, big gun, right, for the big gun companies. And, and they, uh, they pay off the NRA who pays off uh, politicians, and they just they sell more guns. It doesn't say, Whatever safety, science, common sense, or anything else like that tells you doesn't matter. If it sells an extra gun or two, uh, they're willing to do it. So, um yeah. So well, I wanted to, before we have to, I guess we're going to have to go, I wanted to thank you for taking the time to be on with me, Laurie. Uh, it's really always great to get your perspective as someone who's been fighting this battle for a while and has lived it. And I think before I let you go, I want to congratulate you for your son, Townley Haas, because I never got to tell you since he won the gold medal uh, swimming at the Olympics how awesome that is, too. So I'll tell you live on the air so everybody can hear it. Congratulations. That's so cool. Thank you very much, Cliff. It was a it was a fun time in our family, and uh, we're actually hoping for for a little bit more further down the road. <laughs> we'll look forward Thank to you. that. Thank you. Keep up the great work. Okay, I appreciate it, and thanks for your time.
Absolutely. Take care. This is Cliff Schechter, and I'm filling in for Leslie Marshall today. It's the Leslie Marshall Show. We're lucky enough to be joined by Victoria Jones right now, the White House, the, the, having trouble speaking today, the White House correspondent uh, for the Talk Media News Service. Victoria, are you with me? I sure am. All right. How are you? Very well, thank you. So uh, we had uh, some some bad things happen at Ohio State. What can you What can you tell us today? Well, what happened was um, an Ohio State University student plowed his car into a group of pedestrians at the university and began stabbing people with a butcher knife this morning before he was shot to death by a police officer. Uh, Police say they're investigating whether it was a terrorist attack. Um, The police say that um, Abdul Razak Ali Artan, the assailant, deliberately drove over a curb outside a classroom building, then got out and began attacking people with the knife. This officer happened to be nearby because of the gas leak and uh, stopped the driver in less than a minute. Wow, well, that probably saved a whole, a whole lot of people from at least uh, being hurt, so that's pretty pretty amazing. Lucky, but um, glad he was there or she was there. Um, do we know at all why this uh, individual did what he did? Well, this, this uh, young man who I think is probably around 18 uh, is a Somali-born legal permanent resident of the U.S., um, and it's not clear yet why. Uh, they, As I said, they are looking at terrorism. Um, in recent months, uh, the federal law enforcement officials have been concerned about online extremist propaganda that is encouraging uh-huh. knife and car attacks, which are easier to pull off than bombing. Ah, wow. Okay. Now we have to look out for everything, apparently. Um, you also, I think you have a, another interesting topic, uh, The what's going on in Flint with the current Flint mayor pressuring Congress to get emergency funding back to them. What do you yes, know about Flint that? Ma- yeah, Flint Mayor Karen Weaver uh, and more than 100 groups signed a letter urging Congress to uh, provide funding for the city. You see, Congress is only coming back for the lame duck session for a short time, and they're supposed to finalize emergency spending and get this aid package together to replace corroded pipes in Flint and other cities around the country. And we know that people are suffering from contaminated water supplies in Flint. But the, the, the two bills in Congress, one in the House and one in the Senate, they don't match. And they've got to get this deal done before they adjourn into December. So Mayor Karen Weaver is uh, trying to put some pressure on them to get the work done. Has Governor Schneider had anything to say about this? Uh, I haven't heard anything from Governor Schneider in in the stories that I've been seeing about it. Yeah, I I had a feeling he'd still be silent. Okay, well, thank you so much, Victoria Jones. Um, White House correspondent for Talk Media News. And uh, great talking to you. Hopefully uh, we'll talk to you next time, too. The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. 
of for and by you the people Folks, this is Cliff Schechter. I'm sitting in for Leslie Marshall. This is the Leslie Marshall Show. We're talking a little bit about Donald Trump today. We're talking a bit about uh, these terrible events at uh, Ohio State, although could have been worse. We're happy for that everybody is okay so far at this point. Um, you know, we'll talk about other things too, but but Donald Trump, the crazy tweeter himself, kind of dominates the conversation. So. Uh, we've got a we've got a great guest coming up. We've got some good columns of his to talk about. Uh, hopefully, you're all familiar with the great Dean Obadala, who is a serious satellite radio host. Show is on Saturdays. You have to remind me what times, Dean, because I'm dumb. And and uh, Daily Beast writer and CNN.com and really many other places. How are you, buddy? I'm fine. I'm a writing machine, Cliff. I just write him. Actually, my show is now five days a week. It's Monday through Friday, noon to 1 p.m. on Sirius XM Channel 121. Are you serious? How did I not know that, man? You, you're I don't know, buddy. Day or now, huh? You've got to follow my life more than your own and your family's. Focus That's on the Dino Obidala story. Everything will be better. Um, you you stated the problem right there is when you have that whole family thing, mm-hmm. you know, I, if I could just cut them out and start ignoring them, I could pay much more attention to you. I've told you that numerous times, Cliff. Finally, you're going to listen, I hope. <laughs> Dean and I are going to be going on the road. It's called A Jew and a Palestinian. It'll be fun. <laughs> make It'll jokes, be, you know, we can do make jokes to I'm, each I'm, other. I'm completely up for it. We can solve the entire problem, Dean. The whole world. Uh, what problems are we talking about? I have so many, Cliff. Uh, I don't think it's possible <laughs> to solve them all on a comedy tour. But I am I'm rather troubled by many issues, from yeah. Donald Trump to the Dallas Cowboys being as good as they are, which really upsets me because I'm a Giants fan. Oh, nice. You know, I, I'm sitting here in... Lovely Cincinnati, Ohio, where I live with my wife. But as you may remember, I grew up in New York City. Big Blue, baby. That was a great yeah. game this past weekend. So, uh, well, glad with how that turned victory. out. Well, yes, but we'll take it in that it was a victory. I know it was the, only the Cleveland Browns, but but at least uh, we're you know we're, we're only two back on Dallas, and uh, who knows, man? Right? That's true. All you need is Giants to play them December, I think, eleventh, and if they can beat them and. Cowboys lose one more game. Giants keep winning, but it's going to be tough. I mean, it's out there, and, and I feel bad for the Cleveland team. I, I always want them to be better, and it just is not working out this season. I feel bad for them, too, but they had a pretty good year with two of their other sports teams. So. Yeah, well, that's true. <laughs> All right, I guess, I guess I'd love to have – maybe we should do a sports show sometime. But sure, I want me to talk I'm up for that. Here. Uh, we'll, we'll do that one, too. But here we should talk. I want to talk about your columns because you've had two great ones. But I think first I'd like to start with what happened in Ohio State today because now that it's um, somebody of Somali origin, you realize that you and all of your friends uh, who are of Muslim descent are all guilty, right? Yeah, we're, well, that's how it goes. We're, you know, we know so far that he was Somali a uh, refugee at some point, I'm not sure exactly when he came to the country. The reports are he's 18. One of the reports that he's 21, but it seems now, I just saw on CNN, that he's 18 and he's a permanent resident here, and he committed this horrible act. They don't know why yet. They don't know if he just freaked out, if he had mental issues, if it was terrorism. And I guess we'll find that all out in the next 
next day or two. But in reality, it doesn't matter for many people in America. When you hear someone's Muslim, they assume it's terrorism because Muslims can never be mentally ill. You know, we don't have that ability, apparently. So everything we do is... Whereas, whereas white people, as you know, can only be mentally ill. Yeah, that's, We're never that's terrorists. It's kind of cool. Right. You've got that going for you. So you've got that. And I think, you know, interestingly enough, just a few days ago, we had Dylan Roof be judged to be competent to testify in his terrorist attack on the Charlestown Church, which was a terrorist attack and should be labeled a terrorist yep. attack. When you assassinate nine African-Americans because you hate them, including a, st- a sitting member of the state representative or even state senator, that's terrorism. But right. media doesn't Based on their ethnicity and, and yeah, the color of their skin. That's about as yeah. terrorism as it gets. Mm-hmm. So um, we'll see what happens. I mean, time will tell what will happen. Uh, you know, I... I'm glad that apparently, as of now, everyone will recover the last thing I saw of the people that he attacked. He's dead, the assailant. And I'm glad they're going to recover. There's no loss of life. And we'll figure yeah. out why he did this. And and if it's something about terrorism, then I, I hope there's some lesson to be learned how to prevent this type of act again for why this person did this. I'm not, you know, we just don't know right now. Well, I, I would say... As you know, we never can prevent everything. We can do a, a diligent job. That would be actually by trying to to stop people who are threats to us through mm-hmm. a, a more robust mental health system, through more, uh, uh, I mean, not in this particular case because he used a knife, but in, in better gun control, which I've talked about a lot in, in sure. what I've done. Uh, there are ways to make these things happen less um, Trying to say that it's all Muslims is not one of those ways. That would really only make things worse and not solve anything. So, uh, you know, my concern is, and how do you, you know, I'd love to hear it from your perspective. You know, this just happened. Well, we still have President Obama, thankfully, but something of this nature is going to happen at some point if if we do indeed in a few weeks uh, get President Trump, which I'm still not willing to accept. I'm still hoping Republican electors come to their senses and at the very least say, maybe we should give Jeb a chance. But assuming none of that kind of stuff happens and they say we can put a crazy person in office, you know, how do you – I mean, because I can't imagine how that must feel that, you know, you can end up being uh, blamed for for really almost anything. And, I mean, how – you know, something like this happening, do you have fear of what might happen to friends and family? You know, there are times we do – if it was a more dramatic attack with great loss of life, I think it would certainly be a great deal more concern. For us, it's – what we saw actually is that a lot has to do with politicians and how they respond to this. After the Boston Marathon bombing where uh, a couple hundred were killed, I mean uh, wounded, and uh, I think four or five were killed, we really didn't see an anti-Muslim backlash. There, there was very little, and it was actually remarkable to the point where Muslim organizations commented on that. And flash forward to San Bernardino shooting, you had a big backlash, and that's because of Donald Trump and Donald Trump ginning up the fear of Muslims, along with people like Ben Carson and Ted Cruz. But really, Ben Donald Trump leading that is the thing that animates people, and we see that often in the words of the politicians. So. You know, if Donald Trump were to go out tomorrow or later today and say this is what Muslims are about and this is why we have to ban them all, uh, you might see more of a spike in hate crimes. If you see silence from him, you'll see something else. If you saw him actually say, hey, this is one bad guy, this is not what Islam's about, it'd be a whole different reaction. He would, of course, cause, cause a heart attack to most of his supporters who don't like Muslims <laughs> at all. But that's, 
it depends so much on, on the people in power, to be honest. Well, it does, and that's what worries me is because in the past, as you pointed out, you know, these other attacks happened, some of them happened in other Western countries, and where we, people knew exactly what happened here and were scared of them. We had a, a guy who actually is thoughtful, um, you know, measured in his, his reactions, and President Obama in charge. And we're about to have somebody in charge who tweets something out five minutes later that it must have been a Muslim terrorist. You know, and, and then it's not, he doesn't necessarily say we must ban all Muslims, but usually he responds by saying that Muslims are to blame for whatever it was. And that, you know, that would worry me. Right. I mean, that's, that's the problem. We don't know what he'll say. And we don't know if the things he said during the campaign, because he thought it was playing to the base. And what he really believes, we're not sure, because we, I, as I've written about, he has Muslim business partners in Dubai and in Turkey. And... He's been to Dubai just a year before the election, hanging out there with his Muslim business partner, playing golf and loving Dubai and the people there. So what he really believes, we're not sure. And I think if it's not in the election cycle, it would have just happened. And perhaps we'll see a glimpse into what Donald Trump is really about. But he's not someone that you can have confidence in that will be a measured response that's nuanced and helpful to the situation. It'll only be helpful to Donald Trump. That's what we know about Donald Trump. One thing for certain if you like him or not like him, uh, I think you have to concede that he's just about Donald Trump. <laughs> yes, although it seems some of these guys, people who voted for him don't, didn't seem to realize that along the way. They, I mean, it's interesting. You read some different things. Some people thought, yes, he's really going to actually help me, which shocks me. Um, because, I mean, again, looking at everything, you know, within his past, it's always been about him. Um, at least it seems to me. Yeah, and that, that's a big part of it. And I, and I truly feel sorry for people and have a great deal of empathy for them who who had economic difficulties and problems and, and looked at Donald Trump to help their lives because they've lost out and they don't know where else to turn. Unfortunately, they've turned to a con man. But for them, it was better to take that long shot and perhaps he would change things than Hillary Clinton that really truly represented continuing Obama and for some people economically it didn't work out. But of course you have the biggest right. yeah. factor in as well. But for those people who truly just wanted a better economic life for themselves and their family and they looked at Trump, sadly I think he's going to disappoint them. I'm not rooting for him to disappoint them, but I think he's going to. No, I hope, I mean, I think he may sadly, you know, this might be the final straw, but let's talk more about that. We've got to go to a quick break. We're with Dina Obadala, big-time radio host at Sirius every day now, and uh, writer for the Daily Beast and CNN.com. Once again, this is Cliff Schechter, and I'm sitting in for Leslie Marshall. This is the Leslie Marshall Show. We are lucky enough to be talking to Sirius Satellite host, radio host, Dean Obadala. Often you'll you'll catch him on your your TV machine, right, Dean? You go on. You were on uh, Joy Reid the other day, I believe. Is uh, that the, correct? The thing. This weekend I was Saturday and Sunday on Joy Reid, but you know, I I think that it's not really a privilege to listen to Dean Obadala. It's more like a, a community service at some point. I would actually consider. It, you know, I'm really I'm, I'm happy if people tune into my show or listen to me anytime, anywhere. It, it's uh, it's more of a privilege privilege for me. Well, that is very kind of you. Although I'm going to say one thing: now that you're gone five days a week, and I haven't been invited on yet, 
you know, that's kind of been a few. It's only been a short time of that. We were doing Saturdays for a long time. So, a point of contention soon, my friend. You understand that, right? You're going to be on. Cliff, what are you kidding me? Better wait for white people to do something <laughs> bad than have you on to denounce it. Okay, that sounds awesome. I like denouncing all white people as white men. Anytime they do anything, like somebody like blows their nose on a sidewalk and doesn't clean it up, I'm out there. If a white guy yells on a plane like they did the other day, a guy yelling out, I'm a Trump supporter, you know, Jeez. this is Trump country, all that kind of crap. I'm calling you. You have to defend that. Okay. Sounds fair. I'm glad that guy got banned from Delta forever, though. That's forever? Good. That's interesting. Now he'll be on some other airlines and people have to deal with him there. So yeah, exactly. it's a lot of, a lot of white me. anger going on. I, you see, it's little it's isolated incidents. There's another story today on different websites about a woman screaming at, a white woman screaming at African-American employees. There's hate crimes against Muslims. There was just one today reported that happened a day or two ago, University of Washington. You know, you have some white people really feeling their oats thanks to Trump's victory. As if now white privilege means being able to openly demonize minorities because you voted for Trump. Yep. So the definition of white privilege is now changing to become even more alarming. Well, it's also the rhetoric it's and, and who the types of figures who've been mainstreamed, the sort of collection of, of lunatics. I mean, Trump is like flypaper to the most, loony, you know, the, the most loony elements of it's, – it's sort of like whatever you think of, again, like a Mitt Romney or a Jeb Bush, they weren't drawn in. But Mike Huckabee, boom. Newt Gingrich, Giuliani, and Chris Christie. I mean, if that's not a collection of deplorables, with the right, seven yeah. marriages in that group? Lieutenant Michael yep. Flynn, Jeff Sessions. I mean, it's really – and Flynn is horrific. Flynn is the National Security right. Advisor, and he's said Islam is a cancer. And yep. said it's not even a religion. And, of course, Steve Bannon at Breitbart's given some of the most vile anti-Muslim bigots in the country and even in the world a column to write on his publication. So – this administration will be the so most. So I think what we're saying is they're not nice people. No, they're they're really bad people. I agree. Um, so you highlighted in your Daily Beast column um, mm -hmm. this great new ad that has a priest and an imam sitting smiling and getting along with each other. You want to talk a little bit about that because maybe that's some more uh, kind of culture like this maybe is a way to help and and you know fight back against the crazy bigotry that's coming out of trump and fox and god knows where else well i'm not sure if this ad alone will do it but it really is a warm well not an ad but more like this i mean so in any case let me let you explain the ad and that's really important the idea of there's more and more alliances going on in fact tomorrow i have on my radio show the co-founders of the shalom um it's Shalom Salam Sisterhood. And it's, again, the same idea of interfaith work. They've been doing it for years, but now there's more need, they feel, than ever, and more people are trying to get involved. So this commercial for Amazon, which, frankly, if it was a different year, we may have thought it was contrived or just a corpor corporation trying to manipulate our emotions. It's actually a beautiful moving app. People were crying. I mean, I saw so many tweets, and it even moved me to tears. Where you no, have this it was an amazing ad. Sitting there talking, and, and they go and they... After they have this nice conversation, we don't hear what they're saying in the commercial. They go online and order each other a gift. They order the same gift for each other. It's it's a knee brace because they both have knee pain. And the commercial ends with the priest and the imam on their knees praying in their respective house of worship. And it really is a beautiful campaign. And to me, it really embraces American values. This Amazon ad embraces American values more than Donald Trump does. And oh that's a lot yes. your president-elect essentially rejects the idea of your pluribus unum, that for many we're one, and really embraces a much more one, I really think, a white supremacist 
European Christian nationalist nation. That's the country he envisions. And the rest of us are just here by his, the grace of his, his the, nice... Right, you, you happen to be there, but you're kind right. of uh, a lower status, let's say. And by yeah. you, I mean everyone under that, because that includes both you and me. Exactly, um, and that's what's uniting. They're now, there was just an alliance announced about a week ago, very big Muslim and Jewish groups in, this, in, the, in the U.S. working together now. And they'd worked together before, but more of a more formal panel now. And, you know, there's a great spike in anti-Muslim bigotry. There's also a horrific spike in anti-Semitism online that is not manifested in physical attacks yet, but we have seen swastikas spray-painted in numerous yeah. places around the country. And a lot of times that's the start. The next thing is physical attacks uh, against Jews. And it's really it's alarming. And Muslims, we've been going through this. And, and the Muslim community is standing shoulder to shoulder with the Jewish community and vice versa now uh, on this issue. We're, we're both minority faiths. And I think that for those who forgot that, this election has made us keenly aware of it. No, and that's why, again, not just that this ad is so amazing, but the fact that it was put out by Amazon, who obviously is, can be such a cultural influencer and reaches such a large number of people, I think it's incredibly important. So kudos to them, and hopefully we'll, we'll see a lot more like this in the future. So I think we're coming up on a break here. Is there anything else uh, you think we should know, Mr. Obadala? Uh, I love America. How's that? You know, <laughs> I never doubted that. Thank you. I, you know, I've doubted you in other ways. I thought you were a little bit nuts. Uh, a little, you're you're a good nuts. man. We're, we're progressives. That makes us a little bit – we're skewed something slightly, slightly wrong with us. Not terribly. Just well, slightly. we're progressives, and we admit it publicly. Yeah, I know. Obviously, <laughs> which right now may be better if we were just hiding somewhere. But I kid. Never going to hide. Well, yeah. doing this show, I'll be in an internment camp, so you can visit me there. And yeah, uh, I have a feeling I, I, they may not put me in the same one as you, but I have a feeling that that's where I end up, too. Uh, uh, this is not going to end well, this story. Not at all. Well, yeah. unless liberals bound together, work together, and change things for the future, it, it won't end well. Well, and I think, you know what, we can do that. You just pointed out, a, that adds a great example, but you're pointing out Jewish groups, Muslim groups coming together. I've mm -hmm. seen that with numerous other groups of people that, that are uniting and realizing that this is a threat to all of us, so... I think that's a great way to end, which is, you know, we should all stand shoulder to shoulder. This is Dean Obadala on here, my favorite Palestinian. And I'll stand shoulder to shoulder with him any day of the week. Thank um, you. I appreciate seriously, it. Dean, thank you for being on, and thanks for all you do, buddy. This is Cliff Schechter, and I'm filling in for Leslie Marshall. This is the Leslie Marshall Show. Uh, we are three-quarters of the way to uh, the end of our fun broadcast. We, uh, we, what, what do we have now? We've got Bob Seska coming up. That's never unfun. Bob uh, is a writer for Salon.com. Bob, uh, what does he do? Goes on, he has the Bob and Chez uh, podcast. What else do you do, Bob? You do all sorts of stuff. Oh, right now, I just, uh, I, I'm just obsessed with Trump's Twitter feed. <laughs> That's one of the things I'm doing now. Aren't we all? Just looking through his Twitter feed going, oh my God, what is that? <laughs> it's, it's sort of part comedy, part pain. 
Um, it really you know, is. It's, uh, Isn't there? There's a term for that where you combine comedy and pain. There's got to be a German word for that somewhere. Uh, <laughs> there really does. Uh, just, uh, any random glance at Trump's Twitter feed, you'd never know that this guy was the president-elect. It's terrifying. It really is. Um, you know, I'm going to say it may be a time for the re-release of One Nation Under Fear. <laughs> just a thought. Yeah. I have to just update it. <laughs> you just change some names in that book and uh, make it worse in terms of yeah. what people are doing, and I think you'd be there. Yeah, I, I think just I'd to, have to update it every other day, or, or maybe ugh. twice an hour. I think that's the kind of – we're just going to be barraged by this stuff, Cliff, uh, on a daily basis between now and uh, 2020. Um, and, and hopefully it'll end there. Hopefully it'll end a lot sooner than there. But, uh, you yeah. know, based on the election calendar, end there. Um, you know, it, it's one thing after another. And, and the latest thing that I've been tracking is, is health care. And that's uh, maybe the most... You wrote a great piece for Salon on that. Um, out of this group. Yep, I'd love to hear, love you to tell people about it. You wrote a great piece for Salon on health care. Uh, explaining how maybe Obamacare wasn't the most disastrous thing ever done uh, to our country up there with, like, who was it up there with? Hitler or, I don't know, something like that. <laughs> right. One of the Republicans, one of the nutbags, is it Huckabee or somebody had something ridiculous like that to say? Oh, I think actually uh, Ben Carson compared it to slavery, didn't he? Maybe that was Yeah, it. he compared it to slavery. The worst part about all of this, Cliff, is, is just is how um, the – the political press, and specifically how Donald Trump and the Republicans actually talk about the law, where it's obvious they don't know what they're talking about. And that was sort of the the prompting behind uh, this latest piece for Salon that I wrote about the miseducation of Donald Trump when it comes to uh, the Affordable Care Act. And I'd be a lot more forgiving if they actually spoke about the law in a factual way. You know, one of the things I went back to was... Um, Trump's only press availability between from the after the election uh, was to do that 60 Minutes interview with Leslie Stahl, and both Donald Trump mm-hmm. and Leslie Stahl failed to talk about Obamacare uh, in the accurate in the most accurate terms, and this is all in the context of actually trying to repeal the law. So they're talking about. The law with ridiculous terminology that doesn't apply to anything, and, and they're talking about that in a way that is in the context of repealing it. It's, it's absolutely insane. For example, uh, Leslie Stahl referred to it as preconditions. She didn't refer to uh, the pre-existing conditions part of the law. She just referred to it as preconditions, which I guess we should be glad she didn't about refer to precogs, right? who's trained in the issues, who's a professional journalist, an anchor on, on 60 Minutes, for God's sake, referred to it as preconditions. Well, obviously because she's not familiar with the law. Donald Trump then followed up that ridiculous error by referring to the part of the law that covers people who still live with their parents. I've okay. read the law. I don't see anything in the law about kids who live with their parents. Until you're 26 is what he's thinking of, but getting it wrong. Health insurance until they're 26 years old, but it doesn't say anything yeah. about where they need to live. They don't have to live with their parents. They can live anywhere they want. <laughs> but this is the ridiculousness that is being discussed among people who want to kill this legislation. And <laughs> legislation, by the way, that covers 20 million people and counting 
and and eighty six percent of those people actually like the Affordable Care Act. They like the insurance that they've gotten uh, through the Affordable Care Act, whether it's the marketplaces or healthcare.gov. So uh, right. that's that's just one of many frustrating things. And over the next three, six months, maybe up to a year, this is going to be one of the big issues that we're talking about. It's going to be the reverse of 2009. It's going to, you know, in 2009, there was the big fight over passing health care reform, which became the Affordable Care Act. And, and 2017 will be all about them trying to repeal it, the Republicans and the Trump administration trying to tear it all down. Right. All the other thing is pretense, all under, uh, you know, yep. uh, erroneous information and, it, and, and leaders who don't know what the hell is in the law. Right. That it's killing health care, which it isn't. It's, it's, it's giving people health care that it's, you know, that it's uh, causing deficits. It hasn't. It's actually cut the deficit. You know, all the yeah, we know that all the things they make up about it. Um, and the thing is, also, we, the problem with Republicans is uh, you never can expect them to deal in reality. So, and Trump, of course, is them, you know, on crack. So he's yeah. sitting there talking about what to get rid of and what to do. And he's like, we're going to keep the parts that people like. So we'll, we're going to keep the, you know, the, I guess, as we call them, no preconditions, or as Leslie said, <laughs> <call> it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, he, that will be covered. Uh, but we're going to get rid of the mandate. And, and as you know, that can't work. You can't make no. healthcare companies cover everybody, which will be much more expensive, but then not require healthy people to actually buy insurance because if it's then just everybody who has to spend a lot more, uh, who has to be covered a lot more, the health companies will all crash. Um, yeah. Well, the business you model for any health insurance company, and, and whittled down to its simplest terms, is that um, in order to sustain that business model, you have to have healthy people buying insurance but not using a lot of health care uh, in order to cover the people who uh, pay their premiums but use a lot more health care, the, the people who are, who are sick or injured or have some sort of uh, continuing uh, uh, ongoing disease or condition that they need treatment for. So that's, that's basically how it works. And if you take the mandate away, what's going to happen is, People are going to start buying insurance just when they get sick or injured and then canceling the policy once they're better. And so what that ends up doing right. is that games the system. That ends up increasing. You want to see premiums go through the roof? <laughs> Set it up like this, though I don't think the health insurance companies will ever, ever, ever allow Paul Ryan and Donald Trump to eliminate the mandate but to keep the pre-existing condition language. So, I right. mean, it's really kind of dangerous because what that's going to end up – Precipitating is uh, Trump and the Republicans just saying, "Well, screw it. We'll just eliminate the pre-existing condition language," and then everybody, right. I mean, including me, we're all going to be screwed out of our health insurance. Right. So then you're just going to have a ton of people lose insurance, and and if you don't care at all about the human toll, which they don't, but it yeah. ends up becoming much more expensive for all of us because if you don't, you know, if you don't use any prevention. Uh, in the, when it comes to health insurance, you either have to go all the way in either direction. You better be willing to do a Ron Paul and leave somebody who crashes their motorcycle lying to die on the road because they're going to bring them into a, an emergency room, someone who maybe has a, now has something that's gotten much worse because you didn't treat them when it wasn't bad, and, and it ends up being a lot more expensive for all of us. So it's like that's it's ridiculous. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, Trump builds things. I mean, that's one of the things he talks about. Is, it's one of his areas of expertise is he builds things. Well, he should understand then that what the Affordable Care Act is, is it's like building the ground floor. It's like building the uh, 
the structure of, of something upon which you can add new things and turn it into uh, a better and better health care system. The Affordable Care Act was not meant as, as the end of the health care debate. It was meant as the beginning. It was meant as a way to, to continuously improve it. So, you know, if, well, if and that's been the history of this country, better, right? What you ought to do is push for a public option. You ought to sign on with Bernie Sanders, who's, who's going to be proposing, or if he hasn't already done so, uh, proposing a, a public option uh, bill, uh, an amendment to the Affordable Care Act in the United States Senate that would, uh, that would basically begin the process of the government covering uh, or, or allowing people to have government-run insurance policies uh, that would be more affordable with less overhead and, and better coverage. Um, and then from there you build in, you, you work toward closer and closer toward uh, Medicare for all, uh, which seems to be right. the Make Medicare, to push go, it down to uh, 20 to 55. Do in one big fell swoop in 2009 uh, without losing a bunch of Democratic votes at the same time. So Right, they could, lose, med- they could lose med- Medicare. They could down and strip 20 million people of their health insurance. That's going to cause a devastating a devastating effect, not only in the economy, but also in the health insurance industry itself. Because, um, you know, you have all these people who are paying into the system who, are su- who suddenly disappear. Uh, and, you know, even the idea of tr- transitioning incrementally from the Affordable Care Act to Trump Care or whatever replacement they come up with is going to be a nightmare there are going to be so many people who are going to get lost in the in, in the translation between the two things, and you who know they end can't up dying because of this. This is not and again. This isn't about selling red hats or or talking about building a wall. These this is real people. We're talking twenty right. million people who need this because prior to the law, they weren't able to get health insurance because of pre-existing conditions. So. Uh, I, I don't. I don't think he realizes what this law is, what it does, what it's all about. I would like it if he would just read it. I mean, wouldn't it be great if Donald Trump <laughs> read the <laughs> Good law? Good luck there. He knew that he read it from cover to cover and understood it. I don't think he has. Oh my God! He doesn't even go do his briefings on on from intelligence. I don't think there's any chance he's read it or understands <laughs> most of it. I, yeah, I, I want to talk more the about this. For that matter. No, he doesn't know. Uh, remember, he thought there was like 112 articles in the Constitution or something. I have no idea. <laughs> right, I mean, yes. okay. So, so we're going to a break right now, Bob. We'll come right back and let's discuss this a little bit more. Bob Zuska, everybody. Welcome back, everybody. This is Cliff Schechter, and this is the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm sitting in for Leslie. Uh, we are at the last, we're at the bottom of the hour here, coming up to 6 o'clock Eastern. You are almost rid of me, not quite yet. For a little bit longer, I get to talk to Bob Seska, who is with us, writer, pundit, podcaster extraordinaire, video maker. Anything else, Bob? I don't know. I don't know what to add to that. Uh, you sip a good bourbon, don't you? <laughs> that's right. Okay. Well, that's important too. So, we were talking healthcare and uh, what could be done. 
um, I did look up during the break to remind myself that um, that whole crazy unconstitutional uh, mandate, individual mandate, the part that makes the particular plan that President Obama got passed that makes it work, that also made Mitt Romney's work. But when that was the Bob Dole plan, the response to what Hillary Clinton came up with in 1993, a couple, a couple uh, not yet old grouches, but uh, they are now, Chuck Grassley and Arne Hatch actually voted for that thing. But now, oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, now it leads to death panels. What's lost in all of this? It's a Republican uh, healthcare reform bill. I mean, basically, it's something that the Heritage Foundation came up with, I believe, in the uh, in the 1990s as an answer to Hillary Care. And this is what Mitt Romney adapted in in Massachusetts, and which uh, you know, through reading the tea leaves, this is what the Obama White House. And the uh, the Senate Democrats came up with in 2009. Now, granted, this is not necessarily um, something that Barack Obama, in initially proposing it, wanted to do out of the chute. Uh, certainly, if he had his druthers, if he uh, best case scenario had lined up, and the 60 votes that he had in the Senate were all votes in favor of single payer, he might have gone for something closer to that. But knowing that someone like Max Baucus was in control of the uh, of the committee through which the, the health care reform legislation would have to go, then, you know, that was going to kind of dictate the kind of health care reform that we would have had, and, and out of that came the Affordable Care Act. And certainly Obama did push for, even during the, camp, during the 2008 campaign, the existence of a public option. It was also something that ended up getting killed, not necessarily yep. by Republicans, but by Democrats, and, and not necessarily because of anything the uh, Obama White House did or didn't do. Well, you mentioned Max um, the reality of the uh, political climate at the time, really. Right. You mentioned Max Baucus, who was a big, uh, had a lot of connections to the healthcare industry uh, yep. and was a big pain in the butt about that, uh, as was our, our favorite Democrat back then, as I remember, Joe Lieberman, who, would, <laughs> yeah. uh, who, who threatened to undermine. So, I mean, you know, they, they, they definitely were in a situation where they, they needed everybody. And as usual with the Democrats, you, can, you know, Republicans, they, they, they're in lockstep when it comes to at least Congress. Democrats, yeah. you know, it's the conservatives, and we're going to see it with Joe Manchin and Heidi Heitkamp, sadly, I predict, John Tester and a few others. Um, hopefully we'll, have, we'll keep enough of the caucus to reject what they do. But your point is right. I wanted to bring up something earlier also, which is when you brought up uh, the Affordable Care Act, as you said, that's a beginning. Um, you can go back and look at so many of the various policies that we've passed. I think the best sort of example is, is Social Security, which when passed did not have survivor's benefits, uh, did not have children's benefits and spousal benefits in there. It didn't cover a number of different workers, including domestic workers, of course, because they were mostly African-American and Southern, uh, Southern Democrats. They were Democrats back then before they moved on over to the Republican Party, wouldn't vote for it. And so yeah. was that terrible? Sure, it was terrible, but that was the way you were going to get Social Security passed so that you could fix it later, which is what we've done again and again. And that's the, what the, the Affordable Care Act was. It was a starting point. It wasn't an ending point. And if we were dealing with a responsible second, you know, other party instead of one that's been taken over by a bunch of loons, you know, who just do, do what they do so they can go on talk radio and, and the speaking circuit and everything else, then, you know, we would be improving this bill because there's a number of ways. It's not that it's perfect. There, it isn't. And there's a number of ways it can be improved. A public option would certainly be one of them. Yeah, um, oh, yeah, absolutely. You provide, you provide competition. 
You know, so these guys might have to cut down on the on the you know the executive, the exorbitant executive pay, and all the money they waste on extra paperwork and all sorts of other stuff. They might actually have to compete because Medicare is is the is just about uh, the most efficient program medical program in the world. So suddenly, if they had to do that. You know, maybe they'd improve, but the Republicans who claim to love this stuff suddenly don't want any competition there. And so <laughs> That's right. what do we do? Throw the whole thing out instead and just throw a bunch of people out in the street? And, again, if that becomes more expensive for the rest of us. So I don't know, Bob. I don't know well, what the answer know, it's is. It's a $900 billion industry that Barack Obama and the Senate Democrats were able to reform in fairly short order, um, within about a year, an entire new health care structure, not necessarily for, and this is an important distinction, this isn't for people who have, and most of the people in the United States who have health insurance through their employer, this is for people who don't have health insurance through their employer, people who have small businesses. I thought the Republicans were all in favor of giving small business owners more options and, and uh, more choices, and, and this gave small business owners many more choices, uh, much less people who are either uh, underemployed or working part-time who don't have health insurance and who now can afford it. But this is a this is a process of changing the entire landscape but for, from a bottom-up approach. We're going to start at the very bottom and 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 create an infrastructure for all new change to be added afterwards. And the biggest hurdle was creating that structure. Now, to add little improvements along the way, they might not need, you know, a filibuster-proof majority in order to do that. I'm talking about the Democrats. They, they can just, they can do little passes as amendments as they go, or little, uh, little improvements as they go. And uh, I think what Donald Trump is going to run into now is Donald Trump's going to run into all the same kind of hurdles that Barack Obama ran into, including the filibuster, which, um, by the way, <laughs> you're not going to be able to do much in the United States Senate as long as the Democrats uh, are able to retain a cohesive uh, caucus against it by uh, by filibustering any changes to the Affordable Care Act or any repeal legislation. Um, but yeah, because a couple of Republicans said they don't want to get rid of it. Is, uh, the reconciliation process, which means that he can uh, repeal any part of the Affordable Care Act that has budgetary implications. Basically, the, the subsidies, the individual mandate, these are things that he can actually uh, repeal. Uh, but what he'll quickly find out is, as we said at the, the top of the segment, you can't have the pre-existing condition language without the mandate, and you can't have the mandate without the subsidies. You need all these things are interconnected, and he's going to learn that quite quickly. And Paul Ryan is going to learn that quite quickly. And they're both going to learn that the American public is not going to allow, I mean, while there is a lot of screeching Trump supporters right now who don't even have to bother with Obamacare wanting to repeal it, but most people who have it are going to want to keep it, and they're going to be loud. They're, I mean, I am. I mean, I, I have an Obamacare policy, and I'm going to loudly defend it because it's the only way that I can get health insurance. You know, and millions of others are, are sure. like that too. So. Well, you should uh, loudly defend it. Uh, I think even if you didn't have it, you would. That's why we love you. Um, and I just wanted to uh, thank you for coming on the show and bringing a little light to the darkness uh, on, a, on a day when Crazy Man was tweeting again. So thanks for being here, Bob, and uh, we hope to have you back soon. Take Anytime, care. my friend. And everybody out there, have a great night. It was my pleasure joining you. I hope you enjoyed listening. <laughs>